Well, I recently got caught up in a bit of syrupy sweetness when I googled the most elaborate marriage proposals of all time. <laughs> and uh, I saw everything from guys escaping straitjackets to dolphins delivering packages to their sweethearts to hay bales, to sand dart, to jack-o'-lanterns spelling out, will you marry me, uh, to tweets. You know, that guy does not deserve an answer. <laughs> I seriously don't know what kind of woman would say yes to a tweet proposal. I saw things like magicians doing tricks and flash mobs at downtown Disney. Um, one of the most creative things I saw was a guy who designed a website, and he threw it out in cyberspace in hopes that his girlfriend would come across this website, answer the questions appropriately, identify herself, and get the proposal. And she did. It took nine months. I mean, that guy was patient. He's going to be a good husband. But in nine months, she found this website proposal. Um, and I also saw those full-blown, maybe you've seen them, the uh, movie trailer, movie trailer kinds of proposals where the guy uh, rents out the whole theater for family and friends and then plays this movie trailer to ask someone to marry him. And they got more and more amazing, of course, but every single one of them, the culmination is exactly the same. I don't care how elaborate. It's this right here. The presentation of the engagement ring. This is the promise of a wedding day. This is a promise that you're going to share life with the one that you love. And uh, whether you got engaged six months ago or 60 years ago, you remember that day. For me, it was a very long time ago, over, well, over 35 years ago, and uh, I was in college in downtown Chicago, and I was on my way to the senior formal. And I can tell you, just like every other person who's been proposed to and gotten that engagement ring, that all I could do for the next few hours was stare at that piece of adult hardware, if you know what I'm talking about, on my finger. And how it sparkled and how it shone, and I just couldn't keep my attention off that thing. Because that was the promise of a life with someone that I loved. Well. Um, God has a promise, and he has an engagement ring of a promise for us in today's passage, which is going to be 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5, and I would ask you to look there, because this is a promise from the Lord that he wants to marry us, and he's coming back for us, and he's got a wedding day planned for us. Um, this is an engagement ring that only belongs to those who have turned from their sin. It only belongs to those that have gotten Jesus' payment for their sin. Those are his betrothed. Those are the ones who will marry him, who he is coming back for, and who right now have a reserved seat at the wedding supper of the Lamb. And this day, today, we're going to sit here and we're going to look at how this engagement ring sparkles a bit and remember what Jesus promised us 
the day he proposed to us, the day we said yes to him. And we're going to see that not only should we be grateful for our salvation and for the forgiveness that we have, but also for the future that he has planned for us, but also for every single moment of complete security he gives us until that day. It's all contained in this passage. It's all sitting right here for us. If you're a real Christian today, your wedding day is sure, even though it has yet to be realized, even though we're still stuck here. Your wedding day is sure. It's going to happen. The Apostle Peter wrote this letter to a bunch of Christians who were spread out all across the ancient world. And one of the reasons why he wrote is because they were in tough times. Different maybe than our tough times, but they were in tough times. And he wanted to remind them of the blessings that they had and maybe make them count their blessings and name them one by one, which is kind of what we're trying to do this weekend for you all. Um, He wants us to do the same. And he wants us to remember that no matter what we face out there, our greatest need has been taken care of. It doesn't matter what tomorrow holds because we've already been taken care of and that's what we're gonna dig in today. Our sins are forgiven and we're part of his family. First Peter 1, 3 to 5 says, and I hope you've opened it up because you're going to need it. Um, it says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. As one writer said, Christ didn't just make salvation possible, he made it sure. He didn't just make it possible, he made it sure. And that's the main reason for our gratitude today. He's got this engagement ring of a promise for us today, but it's all surrounding the gratitude that we must have because we're forgiven. Be grateful you're forgiven. As the passage begins, it's like we've almost caught Peter in the middle of a sentence. He's blurting out, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because he's so excited he's saved that he just wants to say, praise God, right here, right now. He's so happy and excited about it. But what are we supposed to thank God for? He has lots of things in the passage, but the most immediate and the one we're going to start with is in verse 3. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then verse 3 is because of his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again in verse 3. The God-man Jesus Christ entered time and space, and he lived and he died and he rose again so that we could be remade and be safe and a part of his family forevermore. And that's something we should be shouting our praise about. That's why I was so excited, as I hope you were, to see salvation was the center and it never changed. How cool was that? I don't know why it did that, but praise the Lord for that because that's the most important thing to be shouting our praise about. So let's thank God for his indescribable gift And let's write point number one like this. Be grateful you're a child of God. Be grateful you're a child of God. Number one reason to be grateful. And whoever typed it in there, thank you. Awesome. That was perfect. Peter says, praise God for what he's done to save you. Because sadly, this is something we don't contemplate often enough. And we just don't. We don't think about what our life was like before. 
We're sitting here in the life we have now, we're enjoying all these blessings, and we forget about what our life was like before Christ. BC, before Christ, what was it like? Well, we forget in the busyness of our life, we forget in the hustle and bustle, and even the yucky stuff we're experiencing, particularly right now. But whether you get COVID or not, whether you lose your job or not, whether we have more restrictions put on it or not, put on us or not, um, whether you can see the people you love right now or not, your most important need has already been taken care of. We need to be grateful for our salvation. You're forgiven and you will never pay for your sin ever. We can end right there. You will never pay for your sin ever. Wow. But think about what God did to make that happen, which means we're going to have to think back to what we were like, like I said, BC, before Christ. And to do that, I'd like you to turn to another passage, Ephesians 2, but you are definitely going to come back to 1 Peter. Don't lose it. Uh, Ephesians 2, let's look at what our life was like before him. We obviously, I'm assuming, none of us were like the late night news kinds of sinners, but we were disregarding God on a regular basis, doing things however we wanted to, because we know no person is born a Christian. If you have that in your mind, it's not true. The Bible tells us no one is born a Christian. Everyone had a before Christ life and experience. And Ephesians 2.1 says this. It says you were dead. It's talking about what you were like before Christ. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. It's talking about Satan there among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh and carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Yikes, children of wrath, that sounds like harsh. But everyone who was apart from Christ was an object of his wrath. B.C., okay? 1 John 3, we've been studying in a Bible study all year, but 1 John 3 makes it very clear there's only two kinds of people in the world. There's only two kinds of people in this room. There's only two kinds of people in the world. Those that are children of God and those that are children of the devil. There is no in-between. Not for anybody, no matter who you are. We either saved or we're not. So first off from Ephesians 2, in those first three verses, we see that our salvation is undeserved. It is undeserved. We have offended God and we deserved nothing but his judgment. But God intervened and he caused us to be born again. Glance down at verse 8 for our next observation. Verse 8 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing, it's a gift of God. This verse tells us that our salvation is also unearned. It was undeserved and it's unearned. We could not do anything to get right with a perfect God. Salvation is a God thing from start to finish. We did nothing to make it happen. In fact, Pastor Mike likes to say we brought nothing to the table but the sin that made it something necessary to have happen. Then in Ephesians 4 and 5, we'll see a third thing. Uh, sorry, Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. It explains that being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. 
Our salvation happens because God was rich in mercy. He stepped in and he did it all. And mercy means that the punishment you expected to have, you didn't get. The punishment you should have had did not come your way. That's what mercy means. And from that, we learn that his salvation is also unexpected. It's undeserved, it's unearned, and it's unexpected. God stooped down to us, wretched, sinful creatures who had nothing to offer him. And he saved us. He literally did everything to make this happen. And just like if you were thrown off a ship, let's say one of our activities was a boating thing, and you were out in the ocean this afternoon, somehow you got knocked off of the, not knocked off, you got um, bumped overboard. I don't know, you didn't get knocked off. But anyway, you're out there, you fall in the water, okay, you got it, you fall in the water. Well, when someone throws you a life preserver and you get brought back to safety, we wouldn't expect you to be going, oh, yeah, my experience on the high school swim team, that really helped me when I was out there in the water. You're, or that upper body strength exercises that I've been doing at the gym, that really came in handy. No, you, what would you want to know? Who threw the life preserver? Right? Because if you were struggling in the cold water out there, and you were way far out and there was no hope, you'd say, who threw the life preserver? I need to thank them. I need to hug them. Social distancing, psh, goes out the window at that point. You'd probably want to buy them dinner and a gift because you were so thankful that they rescued you. That's exactly how we should feel about what Jesus did for us. He did everything, literally, to save us. That's why Jesus, or excuse me, Peter spontaneously blurts out, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because he just had the life preserver thrown to him. And he was full of praise, a spontaneous word of thanks that flows from a heart of relief and gratitude at being saved. Now, around our house, we did not say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We also did not say, praise the Lord. We opted for the much simpler, thanks God, thanks God, thanks God, thanks God, thanks God, thanks God. And our kids heard it so often that they started saying it. Thanks, God, for lost homework that was found. Thanks, God, for parking space that was discovered just when we needed. Thanks, God, for sunshine on a rainy day, or a rainy week, I should say, and there was a big game that day, but it was sunny that morning. Thanks, God, thanks, God, thanks, God. And like I said, they started saying it themselves. But I remember one summer in August, we were in Dallas. Have you ever been in Dallas in the summer? <laughs> anyway, in August, it was about 100 degrees, and it was like 80% humidity at 10 o'clock at night. And we were at an amusement park. Six flags. I remember feeling the sweat dripping down places. I can't even, didn't even like really realize that I had nerve endings. And then it just would drip down and it would stay there, if you know what I'm talking about. It just sat there. You just felt all wet all the time. Well, every time we got in the car, one of my kids would say, thanks God for air conditioning, right? Because it was a spontaneous word of praise. We didn't ask them to say it. 
It was a spontaneous word of praise because they were thankful for cool air in the midst of something hot. And I'll tell you what, if you're a real Christian in this room, you have been given much, a much greater gift than cool air in an August summer day in Dallas or night. You have escaped the flames of hell itself. We could probably say thanks God a little bit more, couldn't we? We've escaped hell. Wow. When was the last time you were gripped with the thought of being forgiven like that? When was the last time you thought about struggling out there in the Pacific Ocean and not having someone throw you a life preserver? What if he didn't save you? When was the last time you were compelled to blurt out something like, praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, just because you're a Christian? Well, most of us, most Christians I talk to, we are genuinely thankful for our salvation when we think about it, right? We're not like going, oh yeah, I don't care. When we think about it, but unless it happens to be communion weekend or we're a brand new Christian, it seems like some of that spontaneous praise isn't falling out of our mouth over our salvation anymore. We wanna change all that. My hope and my prayer is that a weekend like this does that for you, that you start to remember what you've been given with your forgiveness and your salvation. So what can we actually do? There are so many things you could do, and I actually hope that you will share your ideas with each other over this weekend. But here's just a couple suggestions to help us thank God for our salvation and forgiveness. I've used this one before, but when you get out of bed in the morning, say thanks God before your feet hit the ground. But I have a revision for you, because this week I heard something cool. I read somebody who said, yes, on these cool nights, we should take our slippers and we should shove them underneath our beds so that when we get out of bed in the morning, we have to kneel on the ground to grab them and we say, thank you, God, before we start our day. And I thought, I am going to start that. So stick your slippers under your bed, right? Because it's going to take you a minute to grab them out and say, thank you, God, for your salvation. Um, how about just every time you start your prayer time in your quiet time, before you ask for one thing, thank him for something. And the most important thing to thank him for is, of course, that you've been saved from hell. And you don't have to pay for your sin anymore. Um, how about share the story of how God saved you with someone? I mean, there is no greater joy than remembering what were the circumstances which led you to finally understand that proposal that God had for you. You know, I mean, it's kind of your engagement story, but it's your engagement story to Christ. And how excited are you to share your engagement story with your husband? Well, you should be a million times more excited to share your engagement story to Jesus. It's called your testimony. Share it with someone this weekend. It's actually one of the questions on your quiet time. Share your testimony this weekend with someone here. Share the joy you have of that story with one another. Um, how about listening to worship songs in your carpool as you run errands? Instead of that, you know, 90s music or that contemporary whatever or that podcast, make sure you're filling your mind and your heart and you're singing along with worship music to the Lord. I've got some of that for you in your quiet time too. 
Um, making a post-it note, you know that's my favorite thing. <laughs> I don't know what post-it notes you have up, but I'm starting to think it's time to pull some down. I have actually recently done that with my repiping. The post-it notes started coming down everywhere, and it's time for us to put some up. How about some just about our salvation? Here's one verse just about your salvation to remind you. 1 John 3, 1. It says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Put that someplace prominent to remind yourself that you are saved. Our God is worthy of our praise. We need to redouble our efforts at thanking him. We are safely in his family, and we are no longer objects of wrath. Whew. Well, God gave us that indescribable gift. But beyond being forgiven, our salvation also comes with lots of benefits that 1 Peter 3, or 1, 3 to 5 is going to talk about. But maybe one of the most important beyond you don't have to pay for your sin is this one. If you can't do anything to get into God's family, then you can't do anything to get out of it either. If you can't do anything to get into God's family, then you can't do anything to get out of it either. Our salvation is 100% secure. Nothing and no one will ever take it away from you. That is something to be profoundly grateful for. But it's also something to make you live a peace-filled life right now. The next thing I want you to ponder as point number two is be grateful that you are secure. Be grateful that you are secure. And to help us be grateful that we are secure, God has tucked three ironclad certainties for Christians in this passage. I am confident that they will motivate you not only to rejoice, but also to be calm. <sighs> Take a deep breath or two. I mean, I know Stephanie's heart and my heart is that you'll take a deep breath this weekend. Yes, we want you to learn you to be grateful, but we also want you to go, instead of going, <laughs> we want you to go, okay. <sighs> it's gonna be okay. You can do that because God has you securely where you are today. Okay, the first of the three things, the ironclad certainties he's given us is in verse three. We already said this phrase, but I wanna capitalize on one part of it that I didn't before. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Being born again means you've been adopted into God's forever family. From this we learn, letter A, that our salvation is guaranteed. Letter A, our salvation is guaranteed. When you got saved, God remade you completely. It's like you're a whole new person. And he also invaded you with the Holy Spirit so that you would be his kid forever. That means that nothing can ever make God turn away from you, nothing. In a room like this, I am confident that there are probably many of you, sadly, that have experienced the tragedy of someone abandoning you. Whether that was your mother or your father, your husband, your friend. I want to assure you that no matter what happens, God will never turn his back on you. If you're really his child and you're in his family forever, he will never abandon you. 
no matter what circumstances you face, no matter who, people-wise, is around you. He won't do it. But frankly, some of you need that reassurance because you're the one who's messed up. It wasn't about somebody else who did it to you. You're the one. You had an affair. You got divorced. You got addicted to something. You had an abortion. You tried to take your life. And in the dark of night, when you're all by yourself, you wonder if God can really forgive you. He can and he does. If you've turned your life to follow him and you've trusted him to forgive you your sin, he's forgiven you. You can't ever bomb out of this thing, no matter what you do. Romans 8, and 34 says it this way. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Jesus paid for all your sin, if you're his child, past, present, and future, and you're never getting out of it. Your salvation is secure. But of course, we all know that is not a pass for you to now do whatever you want. When you sin, God wants you to confess it and then never do that thing again. Confess means you agree with God about it being wrong and then you never do it again. You have a pattern, a trajectory of not doing it again. So this is not a free pass. Our salvation is secure and guaranteed and we've decided to follow Christ so we follow Christ. As Mike likes to say, sin, excuse me, Christians aren't sinless but they do sin less. Okay, but they do sin, <laughs> but it's less, right? I mean, that, it's still a given that you're still gonna make mistakes and you're still gonna sin, but you're gonna confess it and you're gonna stop doing it. And the Bible says something that should be so encouraging to us. It uses the word persevere. It says we will persevere till the end if we're truly saved. Yeah, we're gonna sin less, but we're still going to sin, but we're going to hang in there all the way to the end, and we're always going to be his child to the very last moment before he takes us home. We're going to persevere. Jesus did tell the man that he had just healed at the pool of Bethesda, he said, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. So don't keep doing it, duh, just because he's going to forgive you. No, don't keep doing it. Romans 8.30 promises of this, promises us this. Those he predestined or chose, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Paul is so certain in that Romans 8.30 passage, he's so certain of our salvation that he writes all of those in the past tense. They're predestined, they're called, they're justified, and they're glorified. Everything's in the past tense. It's already happened. That's how sure it is. Well, that's not the only sure thing that Peter talks about, because in verse 5 of 1 Peter 1, he says, by God's power, we are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Guarded. Guarded is a military word, and it is describing a city that is protected. And it's protected because there's a garrison of soldiers, a whole group of soldiers that are posted inside and outside the walls. There ain't nobody getting in that city. That's what the word guarded means. It says you are guarded through faith. 
Peter says God is using his almighty power. You know, we like to talk about the attributes of God and we say omnipotence. Do you know that his omnipotence is keeping you in this? And his omnipotence is protecting you. His almighty power is protecting you if you're his kid. And because of that, we can rejoice in our security. Letter B, that our protection is guaranteed. Our protection is guaranteed. It was God's almighty power that kept Daniel in the lion's den and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. It kept Elijah from Jezebel, wicked Queen Jezebel that wanted to talk about knock him off. That's what she wanted to do. God protected him. God's almighty even protected Peter from himself when he denied Christ and he was brought back. God's power keeps us safe until the day he takes us home, but that does not mean that bad things will never happen to us. I like to think of it this way from Psalm 23. He takes us beside the still waters, but sometimes he takes us through the valley of the shadow of death. They're both in Psalm 23 about the good shepherd. He leads us both places. It doesn't mean bad things won't happen to you. But as Psalm 37, 23 and 24 says, The steps of a man are established by the Lord. When he delights in his way, though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. That was Psalm 37, 23, and 24. 28 says this, the Lord loves justice, and he will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. What a beautiful picture that is. Psalm 34, 7, and the very next psalm says it this way, succinctly, in one sentence. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. It reminds me of a commercial I saw, the Chevy pickup truck. The Chevy pickup truck was kind of like a modern-day lassie. And his job was to rescue this boy named Tommy. And when we first see the truck, the Chevy pickup truck is rushing down this driveway with its horns blaring, and the dad looks up from the garage and goes, what, Tommy's in a well? He fell in the well? And the dad jumps in the truck with his rope, and they rescue Tommy. Okay. In the next scene, we see the Chevy pickup truck coming down the driveway, now with the horn blaring and the lights flashing, and you know the dad's like, oh, what, Tommy's stuck in a cave? And off they go. After that's... After that, it's, where did he get a hot air balloon? How did he get in the belly of a whale? And, oh, I didn't even know this town had a volcano. But every time the truck shows up, the dad jumps in the truck and rushes off to rescue Tommy. Well, ladies, you and I have a rescuer just like that. Our rescuer is the Lord God Almighty, who always knows what's happening and will rush in to protect us. There's another benefit. I said there was three. First Peter 1, 4 says this one. It says that we will be given an inheritance, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and it's kept in heaven for you. Hmm. Our salvation is guaranteed. Our protection is guaranteed. And now let us see our future is guaranteed. Our future is guaranteed. Our future with God is kept safe. And that word kept means this is a completed action. 
we have reservations that will never be lost and never be given to someone else. We're not going to show up at the ticket counter and find out, what, what, the family in front of you, uh, no, no, nobody's going to get your reservation but you. One writer said, heaven is the most secure place in the universe. And Peter uses three words right here to prove it to us. Look at the passage. It says it's imperishable. That means it can't be destroyed. It can't be lost or it can't be taken away. It says it's undefiled. That means it can't spoil. Can't spoil like overripe fruit. Can't be tainted by sin and can't ever go bad. And it says it's unfading. Unfading means it's never going to diminish, lose its value, or disappoint. No one's going to mess with our future. Not even us. Now, the children of Israel, they lost their land many times. We're reading the Old Testament in our daily Bible reading, and we're going to keep seeing this happening. But God promises us that we never will lose that place. He even says in places like Matthew 6.20 that in heaven neither moth nor rust will destroy and thieves will not break in and steal because our future is guaranteed. God is guarding us and he's guarding our inheritance. It's like our names are already written on his will no matter what happens to us. I have no idea if your 401k will meet all your retirement needs in 20 years. But I am sure that every need that you have will be met in 20,000. I'm not certain where you'll live in five years. But I'm certain where you'll live in 500. And I don't know if you will be in good health in 100 days. But you're going to be in perfect health in 100 years. Your future, it's guaranteed. We're going to have problems. But we are going to make it through the wilderness, through the hostile land, and we're going to make it to the promised land. Is that something to be grateful for? You bet. You bet it is. Well, it's good news. Um, we have this security. Um, but how are we going to rest in it? You know, how, how can we really do it? Most of us wake up in the morning and we have that moment of peace and calm and tranquility and rest for about a minute. And then whatever it is that's in your life just comes crushing down on you. We women, we are natural born fretters. It takes us one minute in the morning to start fretting about something. I mean, uh, how about, will, should I buy the extended warranty for the dishwasher? Right? Will my children be safe at school? What are the government officials gonna tell us to do next? Will that college fund be enough? I mean, we are like natural born fretters. Fret, 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 right? We can't stop ourselves. And it only takes a minute. Well, in light of 1 Peter 1, I'd like you to try something different this week. I'd like you to give God just one day, just, just one 
day where you don't fret, where you don't spend all of your energy trying to keep you and your family and your stuff safe and leave it to him instead. Just one day. Try it. <laughs> Just one day where you're not spending all of your energy trying to keep everything safe and controlled. I mean, if 2020 th taught you nothing, did it not teach you that you have no control over anything? I mean, you thought you had control even over the cells of your body or whatever. You don't. You have no control. It doesn't matter how much retirement you have, how much insurance you buy, and which babysitter you hire. You can't control what happens. So just give him one day. Try it. I dare you. Try to fight the fretting and just trust God for one day. Right? Picture yourselves in a great big hammock, like one that I found my nine-month-old daughter in one day on vacation many moons ago. You know, she didn't know if those trees were going to be enough to hold up that hammock. She didn't know who had put it up. You know, were they trustworthy? She had never read the manufacturer's reviews to know if it had enough to hold her strength as a nine-month-old baby. But when I came around the corner, I found her safe in her father's arms. And she sat there without a care in the world in the cool of the shade all snuggled up next to him. Because she knew she was taken care of. She knew she was secure and that she didn't have to do anything. You know, God has you in a great big hammock right now. It's a gigantic hammock of his salvation. And he promises that he will keep you secure until he takes you home. Whether he takes you tomorrow or whether he takes you 30 years from now, he will keep you safe. So rest in that and be grateful for that, okay? Well, we're safe in our Father's arms today, and we have an amazing tomorrow promised for us. So we need to start rejoicing in that, and that's where we're going to go in this third point, but I want to take you to a passage first. It's in Philippians 3.20. It's actually one of my favorite passages in the Bible, but Philippians 3.20 tells us something very important about our future. Remember, he gave us the engagement ring because he was promising us a life with him someday, a tomorrow with him. Philippians 3.20 is going to talk about that. It says this, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have to start, as one translation says, to eagerly, eagerly await him. Eagerly await him today. I put it like this on your outline. Point number three, we need to be grateful for your future. Be grateful for your future. Be grateful for your future. This is another one of those post-it notes to put up. It's a good one. There are many ways to eagerly await, but Peter actually gives us two. <laughs> Sorry, this has so many subpoints, but there's just all right here. I don't know what to do about it. Um, he gives us two right here. I did not make these up. They're from the passage. Um, verse 3 says, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. 
The first way for us to anticipate our future and to begin to be grateful for our future is to wait in hope. While you're here, you need to wait in hope. Now for the non-Christian, hope means that they're looking forward to something that they think might happen, okay? But biblical hope or Christian hope, it's when we look forward to something that we know will happen. That's biblical hope. We are confident of what we hope for because it rests in the promises of God. Biblical unshakable hope is waiting expectantly in confidence for something that we are sure of. He wants us to wait like that. We are sure of it. God wants his people to have hope, so he has given them various illustrations throughout history, and one of them happened during the days right before the captivity of Israel. Um, we haven't quite got there in our daily Bible reading yet, but we will eventually. Um, this was right before they were going to be taken over by Nebuchadnezzar. And Jeremiah is sent to Zedekiah the king. And he tells Zedekiah the king, yes, God is going to take us into captivity. It's going to happen. It's sure. Because we've been idolatrous. Because we put other things before God. But if you will just surrender yourself, everyone who goes to the Babylonians willingly will have their lives spared. Okay, well. As you can imagine, King Zedekiah wasn't real wild about that. In fact, he went ballistic and he put Jeremiah in prison immediately. And he put him in prison just about the time that the city was being taken under siege. And siege means that the Babylonians surrounded the city and they wouldn't let food in. And you could tell that within a matter of weeks, that's going to be a serious problem. No food. They're going to starve them into submission. That's what the siege is all about, starve them into submission. But God gave his people hope because he sent a man named Hannibal. Hannibal was Jeremiah's cousin, and he sent him to Jeremiah in prison. And Hannibal said, hey, Jeremiah, how about you buy some land from me? Okay, well, just think about what's happening. Babylon is swallowing up everybody in its you know, world domination. Not a good time to buy real estate. You know, especially not in Israel that's been surrounded by its troops. Uh, not the best time to make an investment like this. But Hannibal says, hey, Jeremiah, can you buy this property from me? It's a land that, by the way, Jeremiah will never plow, never live on, and never get a crop from. And he says, well, just buy it from me. Jeremiah 34, 14, God says this to Jeremiah. He says, take these deeds, these se the sealed deed of purchase, and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware jar that they may last a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards will again be bought in this land. And he told Jeremiah to purchase it. He wanted the people to have a reminder that someday you're going to come home. You might not you know, get to live on this land, Jeremiah, but someday I'm gonna bring my people back here and they are going to plant crops, and they are going to live off this land, because someday the captivity will end. And he gave hope to these discouraged people that this terrible time would not last forever. It was a beacon hope. 
a beacon of hope for these people. We have a beacon of hope too. It's found right in our passage. It says that we have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God didn't just give us promises in his Bible, which would have been enough, but he also gave us the historical fact of the resurrection. Jesus lived and died, and I'm sure that Peter, think about it, he's the writer of this book, he watched Jesus live. He watched Jesus get arrested, be convicted, and die. And in that moment, I'm guessing his hope might have wavered a little bit. Until when? Until Jesus rose from the dead, popped out of the grave, and it was evident that God's payment for sin had been made. God's wrath had been satisfied. So we don't just have the Bible and the promises there. We have the resurrection of Jesus Christ to give us hope that God's wrath has been satisfied. But what is our actual inheritance? It talks about an inheritance here. I know there's all these little tricky things in this passage. There's an inheritance. We know from other places in Scripture that we're going to get a body, we're going to get a land, uh, we're going to get a new relationship to sin. We're not going to sin anymore. But the Bible also tells us that our real inheritance is Him. In Psalm 73, 25 and 26, God says this, There is nothing on earth that we will desire more than him. Our flesh and our heart will fail, but God is the strength of our heart and our portion. That means our inheritance. God himself is going to be our inheritance forever. He is what we are hoping for, right? He's what we're waiting for. Now, non-Christians, they can cross their fingers and wish for things, but we have a promise and we have the resurrection. Both of those things give us rock-solid hope and confidence that this is actually going to happen. And 1 Peter is going to give us one more way that God wants us to anticipate our future. It's in verse 5, and it says that our future is being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In other words, we're not supposed to just wait in hope. We're supposed to wait in faith, right? Wait in hope and wait in faith. Now, faith or trust in God, we had to trust in God to get into this Christianity thing, and we have to trust in God to live life on this planet. We need to trust him. Hebrews 11 defines trust or faith as being assured of things we are hoping for and the conviction of things that are not seen. Faith is trusting that God will do what he said he would do and to not be afraid. God's going to do what he said, and don't be afraid. Even as we wait for his return in our chaotic, COVID-infested, opposed to everything God stands for, we need to wait with faith. He wants us to trust him and to be courageous even when bad things are happening around us and what we hope for isn't happening yet. Nothing can keep us from getting God's plan for us eventually, right? He didn't say it would be today, but eventually we're going to get God's plan for us. It reminds me of Moses when he um, was standing there with the Israelites, and they had the Red Sea on one side. We just read this a couple weeks ago. The Red Sea on one side and the Egyptians on the other, Remember that? They're like backed up to the Red Sea. Here comes the Egyptians. In Exodus 14, 13, Moses says to them, fear not, stand firm, or don't be afraid, trust God. See the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall never see again. And they didn't. They just had to trust God and not be afraid because he was going to work his salvation for them. It reminds me of two girls that were counting pennies on the sidewalk one day. One girl had five pennies, 
And she says, I have five. And the other girl says, I have 10. And the first girl goes, wait, no, you don't. You only have five. She goes, well, I only have five now, but my dad promised when he comes home, he's giving me five more, so I have 10. <laughs> now, we might think that's presumptuous, but if she had a trustworthy father, she has 10, even there's only five in her pocket right now. Right? That's faith. That's trust. That's how God wants us to wait. And he gave us all kinds of stories in the Bible of people that did that. In Hebrews 11, we've got a couple examples. Moses, remember, he, he left all the wealth of Egypt to go live with the people of Israel. And the Bible says he did that because he was seeing him who was invisible, the God who was invisible. He was trusting that God. And then, of course, Abraham, he leaves his homeland, right? He leaves his homeland. He goes away to a place. He doesn't even know where he's going. Just pack up and start walking, and God will tell you where to go. Wow, talk about faith. Well, it says there that God was not ashamed to be called his God. Hmm. He's not ashamed to be called the God of people who have faith in him and who wait for him, trusting him. That's how he wants us to wait for him. Because those people had 10 pennies even though there was nothing in their pockets. Now, some have likened our salvation to a gigantic filing system that you stumbled upon at one point. And as you looked around, there were drawers as far as the eye could see in every direction, floor to ceiling, and you noticed that one of those drawers was labeled friends. So you walked over and you looked in it. And you went, oh, there's so-and-so. Awesome. And so-and-so. And wait, I recognize all these people. And they, wait, no, these are my friends. And you start to realize, these are my files. This is my life. And you get curious and think, oh, okay. But it's only confirmed as you start to open the drawers and you realize that every file is written in your handwriting. And every file is signed at the bottom by you. So you start digging in the drawers and some of them bring good feelings. Like you open the drawer that says childhood friends and you go, oh, I remember them. I remember that little boy in second grade. His name was Adam. I really do. I remember that boy. And then you remember summer vacations. Oh, you open that drawer, it's like, oh, Lake Powell when I was 13. That was so awesome, right? And then you open the drawer, people I helped. You're like, oh, these warm feelings. And then you notice that there's drawers that don't give you the fuzzy feelings. There's drawers that are labeled things that you might regret. Things like people I let down. Things I grumbled about my husband what I said behind people's backs, fantasies that I entertained, things I did when I was angry. And there's embarrassment and regret. And pretty soon you begin to realize that the size of the drawers depends on how much time was invested in them. And you open the drawer that says, shows I watched. And you're saddened to find that that one seems endless. And you realize how much time you wasted. And then you find a drawer that's really tiny. And it's labeled people I shared the gospel with. And there's only a few files in that one. And you finally build up the courage to walk to the most heinous labeled ones, the worst and grossest things that you've ever done. And you begin to read those most shameful documents. 
And you only have one thought. I cannot let anybody see these. I got to get rid of them somehow. So you grab out that first document and you start ripping it to shreds and throw it away. And then you reach your hand in the next drawer and you start reaping and you realize, wait, it's the same one. And you rip it up and you throw it away and you grab and you find every time you rip it up, it's been replaced with the same thing. And you realize, I have no hope. So you slide down the wall, sit there weeping with your head in your hands, crying. And you think, I ha I, there's nothing I can do. And then you see Jesus walk in. And your first thought is, oh no, Jesus can't see this. He, he can't see this. I got to keep him from seeing this. And he looks over at you sadly, and then he begins to make his way to one of the drawers. And he opens it up, and he reads it. And he goes to another, and another, and he pulls them out, even the grossest of the gross things from your files. And you see him doing the same thing every single time, signing his name over yours. And you notice right away that it's bright and bold and red, and you realize that he's signing in his own blood every single one of your files. And as time goes on, he goes from drawer to drawer to drawer until every single one of them he's visited and he's taken care of. And before long, he walks over to you with tears in his eyes that match yours, by the way. He puts his arm around you and he says, it is finished. And he leads you out of the file room. Ladies, there's only two kinds of people in this room right now. There are people who have had Jesus expunge their files forever, and there's people who haven't. My question for those of you who haven't is, why not? And what are you waiting for? You have a chance to have Jesus Christ take care of every file that you have ever filled up in your life. He will do it with his broken body and his shed blood on the cross because that's what it was all about. It was to pay for your sin so you wouldn't have to. You can have your files fixed today. You can have them fixed right this minute. He can make the payment for your sin and he can sign every document for you. If you will turn from your sin, if you will let him take care of your sin, and you will follow him and start filling your drawers with other things. You need to talk to someone here who's had their files fixed. Let me tell you how you can recognize them. You can recognize them because they're no longer chained to their files. They're free from their sin, and they're filling their drawers with things that please the Lord. That's how you'll know who they are. They can help you get right with God today. They can help you have your files signed in Jesus' blood by the time you leave today, this afternoon, for the next activity, I know they would be more than happy to talk to you about the God of their salvation and to make sure you get right with him today. But of course, there's a whole other group of us here. Those of you that felt the weight of realizing Jesus is signing in blood over your signature and you were thinking about some of those files. The only appropriate response for us is to do what actually verse 8 would tell us to do just a few verses later in 1 Peter, 
we should be rejoicing with joy inexpressible and full of glory. We have no other option than to be grateful to the God who forgave us and to overflow with it. This engagement ring is a promise. It's a promise that he's coming back for us to marry us. So let's be grateful that we're his kids. Let's be grateful that we're secure. And let's be grateful that he's got his future and ours all planned out. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you just does not seem like a big enough sentiment for what you did. I know that my sisters here who are real Christians, just like me, are thinking of some of the things that I wish I could rip up and throw away and never have you even know about. And we're so grateful, Lord, that you not only know about it and have looked it square in the face, but that you paid with your own flesh and blood and you spilled it out because you wanted to be the shredder in our life. The divine shredder that took those files and will make them so we never see them again. And God, I do want to pray for people here that have never had that experience. It's not necessarily an emotional one, God. I, I don't want them to feel like they have to be weeping right this second, but it is a profound one. There is a crushing in their spirit right now. And I am, I am positive there are women in this room who feel the crushing of your thumb on their chest right now, who are realizing, I have to pay for all of that guck. I need help. So I do pray for them, Lord. I do pray for them that they would seek out someone that they can tell is free from their sin and following you joyfully and doing everything they can to fill their drawers with things you would be happy to find there. But I do pray for the rest of us that we would all be incredibly grateful and that words of praise and thanks would blow from our hearts, not just today, not just this weekend, but I want gratitude to stick. And I'm going to keep praying that, and I'm going to keep praying that in front of them, and I'm going to keep praying that in my hotel room, and I'm going to keep praying that when I get home. I want gratitude to stick. And I pray that for my sisters here. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.